Alright, well I'm going to interrupt your fun and ask you to come back and find your seats and your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, perhaps the digital version that you may have installed on your phone is not working for you. Uh, we do have one in the chairs in front of you that you are more than welcome to use and take even if you need one. Um, but the, this morning, um, I mentioned earlier, it's good to be back and, and it's, been, it's been good over the month of July for us to have uh, different men rotate. And I'm so grateful for, uh, for Kevin and for Taylor and Danny and their willingness to uh, to preach and, and lead us, um, and, and what that has done is it's given us uh, an opportunity to kind of think forward to Mark, think beyond that a little bit, um, but it's also made me feel like a bit of a caged animal, because uh, the past four weeks I haven't had the opportunity to preach, and so I know I joked earlier on Tuesday about having a two-hour sermon. I really don't see any of you having brought snacks, so we're probably going to need to make that a little less, late. we do have snacks here, okay. Great. Uh, sour gummy bears. Um, be perfect. Be perfect. I probably should stay away. It might just fuel the fire. Uh, but here, here's what we're going to try to accomplish this morning. And let me walk you through a little bit of why. Um, we're at Mark 10 this morning. And uh, over the next four weeks, we're going to take the 10th chapter of Mark. And uh, we're going to preach through that. And I said then August 30th, we're taking a five-week break. We'll come back in October and hit 11 to 16 in Mark. If you've looked at Mark, or perhaps you're just turning there, you're going to see that uh, in Mark 10, the first 12 chapter, 12 verses, Jesus is teaching on divorce. Uh, and, and so if you would put down a list of things that probably are good things to avoid your first year to preach through, I bet you divorce would make the list. Um, and, and so, but yet here we are, and, and we're here because of this reason, um, we believe that the best posture for us as we approach the scriptures on a Sunday morning is to walk through books of the Bible in the way that the Lord wrote them. That it's a far better use of our time if we start, for example, at Mark 1 and go to 16 than it is for you and I to just rely on my creativity to figure out, okay, what are we going to do next week or next month? And, and so I, I was fully aware Mark 10 says what it says, and it was 10 chapters into the book, and we were going to get here at some point, uh, but it, it's not from the, the creativity that I would so bring to the table, but rather, I believe, from the Lord's direction. Um, and so what we will aim to do this morning is to really uh, understand what Jesus is saying about divorce in Mark 10. What he says about marriage, because he says far more about marriage in Mark 10 than he does divorce. And uh, as you walked in this morning, uh, I hope you were given a note card. If not, there may be just a few of them around. That note card is not for you to take notes. That note card is for you to write down some questions. We've got about 40 minutes this morning. If you've got questions about divorce, remarriage, about this text, I want you to give them to me. In January, the plan is, is that we'll take the month of January and walk through a sermon series on marriage and family. It'll be about three weeks on marriage. It'll be about one week on abortion that coincides with Abortion Sunday. And then that leads us into a marriage conference the first weekend of February. So that's a Super Bowl weekend. We're going to have the marriage conference on February 5th, which is a Friday, the 6th, which is a Saturday. Then we'll celebrate the Super Bowl together. So we're about a football season away 
from this marriage conference is where we are. Um, but your questions are not ones that I want to leave unanswered. And so those will become very important feedback pieces for me as we approach this marriage series. And um, Lord willing, it's profitable. Um, so would you pray with me? We'll hop into the text this morning together. Father God, Lord, we're about to, to look at what you've said. Lord, I want to recognize that you have said it and that it is in our best interest to draw near and read it, seek to understand it, listen as, as you speak, as your word is read. And God, this topic, marriage in general, is, is, is currently being fought over. For centuries, it's been lived out in such a way that it's probably not been honoring and pleasing to you. And, and there's, there's an immensity of heartache and pain that comes with this. And so, God, I pray for, for my words this morning. God, I pray for my tone this morning. God, as we look at what you have said, I pray that you'd guard my words from error. That as we think about what Christ tells us, about marriage, that we may think deeply. And Lord, I pray that you'd move and that you'd work in this place this morning. And it's in Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. Well, let's go to verse 1 of Mark 10 together. And he, this is Jesus, left there and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. So Jesus is now leaving Galilee. If you remember, most of his ministry up to this point, as Mark records us, centers around the, the Sea of Galilee. He sometimes goes off this way or that way or any way, but he usually comes back and returns. And so Mark, for the better part of nine chapters, has recorded Jesus' ministry centered around this sea. Chapter 10 is a bit of a transition chapter because he's now marching and moving his direction to Jerusalem. We get to chapter 11, it's the triumphal entry. Mark will now devote five chapters in his book to the last week of Jesus' life. So you've got the better part of 10 chapters covering three years, five chapters covering a week. That's a bit of where we're going. So Mark 10 is a transitionary chapter for us, and Jesus is moving from the region of Galilee through Judea, beyond the Jordan, and the crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. Jesus wasn't just interested in healing people. He came to teach. And if you remember back to in Mark 1, when Jesus was even given an opportunity by his disciples to take up this itinerant healing ministry, where he would just travel and speak, and people would have their physical infirmities taken care of, he says, no, that's not why I came. I came to teach. And so he, over the course of three years of his life, has been teaching. In verse 2, Pharisees came up in order to test him and asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now what Mark writes there, and the way he writes it, that word test is written in such a way that Mark is trying to vividly paint a picture for us. These are not men who have a genuine question about the matters of divorce. 
The word Mark uses and the way Mark writes this word is that he is saying they are literally setting a trap for Jesus. They are, they are trying to put out the snare, hoping that he walks into it and has the teeth clamped down on him so that he is caught. It's what Mark is describing that is happening here. And so Jesus, in the midst of teaching crowds, now has the Pharisees come and approach him, and they're laying the trap. And the trap is in regards to divorce, divorce, and the question simply is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, the trap was really set in two ways. If Jesus answered with a quick no, then the Pharisees could respond and say, well, wait a minute, what about this Old Testament passage of Scripture where Moses references divorce? Do you not know the Scriptures you claim to be a teacher and you don't even know the very Scriptures you claim to have authority to teach? Do you see where that argument can go? The second direction that it could go is that Jesus has now entered the territory of Herod Antipas. You might remember him from chapter 5 of Mark. He was married to Herodias. It was Herodias after their daughter danced for Herod Antipas and pleased him so much that requested the head of John the Baptist on a silver platter. The request of John the Baptist's head on a silver platter by Herodias was because John the Baptist had been preaching against the unlawful marriage and divorce of Herodias and her husband Philip and then the remarriage to Herod Antipas. So Jesus walks into a new territory and the Pharisees come and they lay a trap before him and then you can very plainly see where that goes. If he just answers, no, it's not lawful, well, the Pharisees probably don't say anything else and they march right over to Herodias and go, hey, did you hear what Jesus said? Remember that guy, John the Baptist, his cousin? Remember how you had his head given on a silver platter? Why don't you go do this for this man as well because he's not saying anything different. See, the trap's been set. And Mark writes in such a way that he wants us to have a vivid picture of what's at stake here. And so Jesus answers. And we're not going to look at this part of this set of verses this morning. But I'll just say this in parenthesis. If any of you are curious as to how to answer the questions of marriage in your workplace, that may be asked by people who don't believe what the Bible would teach, Read back through these verses sometime this week and see what Jesus did. He provides an example for us of how to, in wisdom, walk through this conversation. So back to the text, Jesus answers. Jesus engages the question. And he responds, what did Moses command you? We can easily just translate that, what does the law say? What does the Old Testament say, guys? They respond, verse 4, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Now, do you see what's happened with some words there? You see what's happened? Jesus asked the question, what did Moses command you? What do the Pharisees do in response? Well, Moses allowed, Moses permitted Even in their response, they're immediately recognizing that Moses never commanded divorce. You see, the language here is real important. And Jesus continues and says to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. So Jesus says, hey, what was the commandment? The Pharisees respond, well, he allowed for it. 
So they're acknowledging there wasn't a commandment for men to go divorce their wives, but then Jesus responds and says, it was because of your hardness of hearts that he wrote to you this commandment. And the Old Testament text that is at the center of this discussion between Jesus and the Pharisees is Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. And I'm going to put it on the screen for you because we need to go to this text and look what it says because we're not going to understand Mark 10 if we don't understand the discussion here that it is centering around Deuteronomy 24, 1 to 4 because it's very important for us. And so Moses writes... When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and marries another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of her house, or... If the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance." Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4, is case law. It is a scenario that Moses puts forward and then gives a very specific command about. So let's break down the scenario. Maybe it's hypothetical. I suspect this was happening because of the Israelites moving out of Egypt where the honoring and cherishing of marriage would not have been in play. And we see really the same thing in their midst as well. But this is a scenario. And so you see the word if show up several times. If's a conditional word. If paints a hypothetical situation for us. So when a man takes a wife, if... She finds no favor and it continues. Or if she goes and becomes another man's wife and if the later man dies. So there's all these conditions that have to be met. Well, Moses does end up giving a command and we'll look at that in a minute. But this goes perhaps a little further because the reason that we're told of the first divorce is some indecency. So if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency and he writes her certificate, he places it in her hand, he sends her out of his house and she departs, then the conditions continue. Well, those two words, some indecency, are two hotly debated words. Not just hotly debated words in 2015, they were hotly debated words in the first century. Because there was really two schools of thought and interpretation about what these words meant. There was a very conservative group of the Pharisees that believed that the words some indecency in Deuteronomy 24 was, was about marital unfaithfulness. That it was about an affair. It was about sexual immorality. That it was about adultery. And so, so then you had the, the permission to divorce your wife or there was the allowance for divorce because the marriage covenant had been broken. There was though a very, very liberal group of Pharisees that believed that the word some indecency meant whatever upset you at the time. And so literally, historians record for us that if a woman burnt dinner, she could be written a certificate of divorce. 
It could be placed in her hand. She could be booted out of the home. Now, last night, I came home with Rita's without custard, and it was a bad night. I'm glad that she didn't give me the boot. But that probably could have been an indecency. I mean, that's, that's the thoughts surrounding these words. I think that the some indecency words here were directly in reference to a view of women in marriage that saw them as commodities to be bought and sold, not as treasures to be cherished. I do not believe the words some indecency have anything to do with adultery because Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 22 very clearly outline the penalty for adultery. And it was death for both parties. And I believe what you have here, what Moses is writing about in Deuteronomy 24, is a view of marriage and women that saw them as commodities to be owned and sold and used at the selfish indulgence of sinful men. That if they weren't pleased, they could give them the boot. Well, there is a command in Deuteronomy chapter 24, and I believe this is the command that Jesus is writing about. And so you have the word then. Deuteronomy 24 leads off with the word when. Hey, here's the scenario. Then, here's the command. Her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife. That's the command in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. Moses does not command divorce. He does not actually speak for or against divorce. He is, though, speaking into a culture that was aggressively divorcing their wives for every little reason under the sun. And he says that if that is to be the case, husband A cannot go and remarry his wife if husband B either divorces her or dies. There's a lot of cultural things that we're just not going to step into this morning. But what this law does, what this commandment does, is that actually gives rights to women in this society. And I could walk you through that and I believe prove why that's the case. If you want to ask for those specifics later, let's go there. But I believe this command gave women rights within this society where the prevailing opinion was, if they don't please me, I'm done. This is the passage that Jesus and the Pharisees are having their discussion about. And lest we think that we have it perhaps a little worse that divorce is a little bit more common today than it might have been then, our divorce laws require a greater burden of proof than the divorce laws in the first century did. So getting a divorce in Pennsylvania in 2015 is more difficult than getting a divorce in the first century was. In Rome, Mark writes to a group of Romans, and Rome, a first century historian, comments, Is there any woman that blushes at divorce now that certain illustrious and noble ladies reckon their years not by the number of councils, but by the number of husbands and leave home in order to marry and marry in order to be divorced? So a first century historian who is writing about what is happening in the time with the group of people that Mark writes his gospel account to comments that women in Rome were not measuring time by what society did or by what the city council did, but by how many husbands 
they had. And they, married, they left home in order to marry, but they only got married so they could go and get divorced. So we're not dealing with just a 2015 issue. This has been a heart issue for the past 2,000 years. This goes back a couple thousand years before the first century because Moses writes about it and into it. This has been an issue for a long time. And Jesus and the Pharisees are having this conversation. And so it is because the hardness of your hearts, verse 5, that he wrote you this command. So the command was that husband A couldn't remarry wife. And it was because of the hardness of their hearts. They saw women as commodities to be owned and bought and sold and traded and gotten rid of if they weren't pleased. And Moses said, now we're done with that. They viewed marriage more from the perspective of when was it going to be over rather than this will last a lifetime. And I've been thinking about that over the course of this week and and I'm training for the Mad Anthony half marathon, which is in about six weeks. And so I I went for a run earlier this week and and was planning to do about four or five miles or so. And it had been about four or five days since I had run. And and I've noticed that if I don't continually run, it it gets harder to get back into it. You kind of got to get everything re-lubricated and moving around. And, And I found myself on my run on Thursday at about mile two, just completely out of gas wanting nothing more than to stop. And as I'm running, this, this picture, this illustration came to mind that, that there have been runs that I've done where I, two miles in, it's like, that's, that's a joke. Like you're stopping two miles in, and yet that was the only thing on my mind. And sure enough, I got to about the three-mile mark, and I, I, I'm done. I got to stop. And, and it, my focus was on when I could stop, not on, you know what, let's go complete the four miles. And these men in Deuteronomy 24, I believe these Pharisees in Mark 10, are asking about marriage in such a way that their focus is on, well, when, when will this end rather than this lasts a lifetime? And there's a huge perspective shift in what you're willing to perhaps endure. The, the hills that I run up, the, the discomfort in my muscles as I run them, the, the sweat, you can endure a whole lot more if you're thinking, you know what, no, we're, we're gonna finish as opposed to, when can I stop? But Jesus now, in moving forward, takes their question out of the specifics about a scenario that may have been and moves it back to the days of creation. Oftentimes, when we are, when we are asked this question, we look at the actions of people and we try to weigh, okay, well, did he do this or did she do that? Or what, what was the scenario? And Jesus completely moves beyond all of that and focuses our attention on the actions of God. And so it's because of the hardness of their hearts that Moses wrote this command. And in verse 6, three little letters composing such an important little word. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. Jesus moves past the scenarios and says, well, wait a minute, let's think about the intent that God has and quotes Genesis 1.27 for them. So God created man in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Jesus summarizes that and says, God made them male and female. The word that Mark uses and records that Jesus used the word made is the exact same word that Moses wrote in Genesis 1.27 that we have three times being created. There is a divine agency behind marriage. There is a divine agency behind asking and answering this question, is it lawful for a man to get a divorce? And that agent is God. And Jesus takes us back to the creative order. And so we see in the creative order, as Jesus is quoting from Genesis 1.27, that this is something God has done. And he has created image bearers, male and female image bearers that have unique and complementary functions. And Jesus continues, Therefore, and now quoting from Genesis 2, 24, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so in addressing this question and answering this question, Jesus takes us past the scenario of he did this and she did that and moves us back to the creative order. Well, God created male and female to have unique and complementary functions and roles in a relationship. And therefore, as a result of that creation, a man will leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The word leave that Jesus uses there means to leave or depart, and there's emphasis placed on the finality of the action. See, as married men, we we no longer have our highest priority being that of our mothers and our sisters and our fathers. Our highest priority is now our wives. Married women, your highest priority, relational priority, is now your husband because God has ordained that it be that way. And so there's an emphasis on the finality of the action. There is a leaving that takes place. And we, we see this just expressed when, when people actually physically leave homes. And they go in and they move in together after their wedding night. There's a physical representation of what the Lord is saying he has created and intended. And the two hold fast together. This word hold fast means literally to be glued toward somebody. The, the overtones of, of sexuality are all through that. And you can even see the complementary, unique and complementary functions that a man and a woman have where their bodies have been designed in such a way that they fit in and unlike other bodies fit because that is the way the Lord has designed them. They are literally glued toward another. And the result of that gluing, which is celebrated in the physical celebration of marriage, the consummation of marriage, is much, much greater and deeper where you are glued together as one flesh. We think about it often in in ways that, that make just really a lot of sense for us. I got a cutting board here. Obviously, there are strips of wood that have been cut out, they've been jointed, they've been glued together, but none of us in our kitchens this afternoon, if we're chopping some vegetables, would say to those around us, hey, go get me those strips of wood, I gotta cut some peppers. What? You know, all the strips of wood. Like, just go get me all the strips of wood. No, what what do you ask for? Hey, can you get me the cutting board? 
This board is composed of all sorts of pieces of wood, but they have been glued together, and your very language in describing this piece of material reflects the truth that Jesus is teaching about marriage in Mark 10. This is not a bunch of pieces of wood that can easily be separated and pulled apart. These are pieces of wood that have unique and complementary functions to one another that have been glued together, and now you and I call it something different. It's a cutting board. It's not a bunch of strips of wood. How about this? We're all familiar with what this is. The print doesn't matter at all. Just turn it around to not distract you. It's a cotton poly t-shirt. 50-50 blend. You see where I'm going with this. You're not tomorrow morning or today after church going to go, I really need to go find those threads of polyester and those threads of cotton, and put them on. Now you speak that way. Your, your spouse or your roommate or whomever is going to go, are you out of your mind? Now you say, hey, I, I'm going to go put on a t-shirt, right? We refer to this as one when we know that it has been formed and fashioned together by two separate things. This is what Jesus is saying. We have language, we have ways and pictures all throughout our lives that express this truth that Jesus is getting after. And so Jesus, in answering the question, is it lawful for a man to get a divorce, moves way past that and does not speak to the scenarios. He speaks to the permanence of the union that God has created, the intricate weaving that the Lord himself has done in bringing two people together and gluing them so that they are now one. This is the argument. This is the answer that Jesus gives as he responds to the Pharisees. And he says in verse 9, it gets quoted at most weddings, at the tail end, perhaps after the kiss, maybe right before, depending on how ambitious the bride and groom are. But you have what therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. Again, do you see divine agency? Who's the one that joined the union? It's God. Well, God, I, I booked the church, I made the reservations, I called the caterer, I set the place settings, I went to the cake bakers, I tested all sorts of, of flavors and varieties, I paid way too much for that cake. I, 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 no, no, Jesus blows right past all of that. God joined you. And in taking us back to creation, and taking us back to Adam and Eve, and how the Lord formed them as unique and complementary parts, and taking us back to the result of that, that The man will leave his father and mother. He will hold fast to his wife. They will be one flesh. I believe the Lord is also taking us back in verse 9. What God has joined together, let man not separate. Adam was not given authority to go and change the created order. He was given the task and authority to go and work and keep what God had made. Adam was never told to go undo anything the Lord made. He was told to go and let it flourish. What God has joined together, let man not separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him, verse 10, about this matter. Oftentimes when Jesus teaches, and it's been a hard-to-understand teaching, Mark records for us a, a, a getaway of interpretation that Jesus gives. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And that's all he gives us. He's speaking to the permanence of 
marriage. He's speaking to the reality of this one flesh union that God has joined together. And Jesus, in verses 10, 11, and 12, also, again, elevates the rights of women. And he says that, and speaks to a culture where men and women were able to go and divorce as they wished. It says that if they divorce and go and remarry, they have committed adultery. Now, you may be wondering, and in, in good Bible teaching would, would go here, all right, well, pastor, what about the exception clause? What about that? And it's true, it's there. Matthew 5, Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 7. Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, Jesus is teaching on divorce. He's teaching on remarriage. And Matthew 19 actually is the parallel to Mark 10. And Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality or except for adultery. So there's an exception clause. The word except is there. And then you have Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 speaking about a scenario where you have a believing spouse being deserted by an unbelieving spouse. He says that as the unbelieving spouse leaves, the believing spouse is no longer enslaved. But those are the two exceptions. Those are the two instances that an exception clause would be given. But in Mark 10... Jesus doesn't speak to that at all. He speaks to the permanence of marriage. He takes their focus from when is this going to end and when can I lawfully make it end and moves it to, now you guys missed it, it's to last forever. See what he's done there? They were running up a big hill wondering when can I stop and stretch my hamstrings. And Jesus is saying, now you stop at the end of the race. That's when you stretch. That's when you get a glass of water. So what do we do with this? How can we uphold marriage? Because I think that's exactly what Jesus has spent the majority of his time here answering. I've got a couple thoughts for you. I think, firstly, we need to understand what the Bible says and what God thinks about marriage and how he has created it to be. Marriage is to be permanent. It is to last a lifetime. It is to be one man, one woman, covenanting together before the Lord in agreement with what he is joining with a commitment to each other forever. I think we proactively can pray for the Lord's help. There's a little prayer that I pray often, and it's this, and it may just sound old-fashioned, but it's probably the best I got. Lord, knit my heart to this woman. Simple little prayer I pray often because I want him working on my heart. I want to have a heart that's, that's humble enough and soft enough that it's willing to take the work and it's willing to do everything that I can and need to do to pour into the live life of this woman. So I pray, God, help me stay. Knit my heart to her. Help me cherish her, help me love her. We can proactively get after it in that way. But how about this question? What, what do we do if, there's, if there has been divorce and remarriage? What do we do where, where if, we, if we can just call it what it is, and Mark 10 says what it is, what, what do we do where there's sin in this area? We run to the cross. That's what we do. We run to the cross because his grace is greater than our sin. 
And so if that's been a part of your story, if that's been a part of your history, and you've not ever repented of that, run to the cross. 1 John 1.9 says that if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to cleanse and forgive of all unrighteousness. Folks, divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Perhaps 40 years ago, the church taught that. Currently, the church is kind of working itself through how homosexuality is the unpardonable sin, and that's not true either. We can oftentimes pick things out of a list and go, that's the one you don't want to ever do. That's the one that might be past his forgiveness, and it's just not biblical. His grace is greater than our sin. So run to the cross. Repent. Confess. And that repentance may actually need to include you repenting to the spouse that you divorced, you repenting to the children that were a part of that divorce. We're told to go and confess our sins to those we have sinned against. But there is grace and freedom and cleansing in taking care of that business, in running to the cross, in owning our sin before the Lord and knowing that he, as the one who has died for it, will take it and separate it as far as the east is from the west. And there's no east pole and west pole. Those two things never touch. But if you don't repent of it, if you don't confess it, you're not cleansed of it. It's not been removed from you. If you have repented and you have confessed, I want you to be real careful that you do not allow Satan, who is the accuser of the brethren, to in this moment heap lots of guilt and condemnation and shame on you. He's really good at doing that. But God's word says, if you have confessed and repented, you have been cleansed from that unrighteousness. Your sins have been separated as far as the east is from the west. There is no condemnation. So if you have taken care of that business with the Lord, then you don't need to go and do it again. It's been done. It's been covered. His grace is greater than our sin. And we run to the cross because at the cross we find His mercy, his grace, his forgiveness, and it's greater. And so as we close this morning, I ask the band to lead us in that hymn, Grace Greater Than Our Sin. And just the very words of that hymn alone should stir in us many reasons to sing. Perhaps there's some specific reasons in and regards to this particular topic, but I would encourage you and I would exhort you and I would plead with you that you would run to the cross, that if repentance is needed, that you repent and you run to the cross. While the band is playing up here on the platform, I have strips of cotton poly t-shirts. I've got a friend who works in the screen printing business and he overnighted these to me from Indiana. And so they're, they're intended to, to be a reminder for you. I mean, we've got wedding rings. We've, we've got pictures. We've, I mean, I, I see Carrie every day. I'm reminded of my marriage to her. And yet, and yet I wanted to give you an image that I believe Jesus gave us in Mark 10 about the intricate weaving together of two unique and complementary people into one. And so there's a pile of them 
on this side. There's a pile of them on that side. And as the band is playing, I would just ask you to come and get one. Have it be a reminder. Maybe it's a bookmark that goes in your Bible. Maybe it hangs on your bathroom mirror. Maybe you stick it in your wallet. You put it where it's going to remind you. But this is the picture of marriage. It's two becoming one. And becoming one in such a way that they're no longer distinguishably different. They're now uniquely something that they were not before. And so as the band plays, come. If you're not married, perhaps one day you hope to be married, still, come. Perhaps you're widowed, still come. There's not many times that I've spoken with a widower that I've not been left with the distinct palpable impression that they understand the beauty of what they had in ways they never did when their spouse was alive. They know this now. And that's to be celebrated all the same. So the band's going to lead us. Would you stand as they do? Would you come, grab a t-shirt strip, and sing out?